are listening to the sermon podcast of Brockport First Baptist. We are a progressive American Baptist congregation located about 20 minutes outside of Rochester, New York. To learn more about our church and support our ministries, please visit BrockportFirstBaptist.org. Our scripture reading today is Luke 6, 12 through 26, and it is located in your Pew Bible, page 837 through 38. Now during those days, he went out to the mountain to pray, and he spent the night in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples, 12 of them, who he also named apostles, Simon, who he named Peter, and his brother Andrew, and James, and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, and James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who is called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. He came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all of Judea, Jerusalem, and the coast of Tyre and Sidon. They came to hear him to be healed of their diseases, and those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd were trying to touch him, for power came out from him, and he healed all of them. Then he looked up at his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you will be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, revile you, and defame you on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day, and leap for joy, for surely your reward is great in heaven. For that is what their ancestors did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you will be hungry. Woe to you who are laughing now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when all speak well of you, for that is what their ancestors did to this false prophets. Thank you, Mary. So good morning again, everyone. We had our family bowling night this past Wednesday night, which was a real blast. Um, We had four families from the church come out and join us for bowling, uh, which was a really great time. I think everyone in attendance was uh, surprised by my bowling skills, I think we could say. Um, Not to brag, but I broke double digits which uh, is a pretty good night of bowling for me. Um, But I do want to thank everyone who came out for that. Uh, Thanks to the outreach team uh, who helped cover the expense of the kids' bowling. And I also want to say a special thanks to an anonymous donor 
uh, who covered everybody else's bowling, which means we all got to bowl for free. Uh, it was an awesome time, though. <clears throat> now, full disclosure, our passage for this morning is kind of a tough one. We're looking at the blessings and woes announced by Jesus in Luke chapter 6. And I'm not exactly sure what side of the bed Jesus woke up on the day he gave these blessings and woes, but they've got a a bit of an attitude. This section of scripture is often referred to as the Beatitudes. Uh, It's an old Latin word that means blessing. And there are actually two versions of the Beatitudes in our Bibles. There's one from the Gospel of Luke, which Mary just read. And then there's another in Matthew's gospel. If you were here over the summer when I first came to this church, we spent about nine weeks together journeying through the Beatitudes, Matthew's version, because Luke's is a lot trickier. Matthew gives us eight blessings, eight announcements from Jesus about the types of people who are considered blessed in God's kingdom, very straightforward. But Luke gives us four blessings and four woes. And Luke's take on all of this is much more visceral. In Matthew, which this is in Matthew 5, Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. In Luke, it's blessed are the poor. In Matthew, it's blessed are you who hunger and thirst for righteousness. But for Luke, it's blessed are you who hunger. And scholars debate the relationship between these two, like, similar but different versions of the Beatitudes in our Bibles. It's possible that Matthew and Luke could be recounting the exact same event, but from different perspectives. That's possible. Um, Matthew is always drawing parallels back to the Old Testament, so he places the Beatitudes with Jesus on a mountain, drawing a connection between Jesus and Moses, who famously received the Ten Commandments on a mountain. But Luke, on the other hand, is very concerned with justice and equity. So he has Jesus coming off the mountain, coming to a plain, or literally a level place, standing amongst the people as he gives this message. So they could be the same. It's also possible, though, that Matthew and Luke are recording two entirely different events. Uh, Jesus could have delivered one version of the Beatitudes from a mountain at one point, and one from a plane at another point. We really don't know. It wouldn't be the first time that a preacher has recycled old material for a new sermon, Um, but we don't know. We just don't know. What we do know, though, is what we have recorded in front of us. And I just want to read Luke's version of the Beatitudes for you one more time so they're nice and fresh before we dig into them. Um, They're on the screen if you want to follow along. I'm reading from Luke 6, beginning in verse 20. Then Jesus looked up at his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you will be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, revile you and defame you on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for surely your reward is great in heaven, for that is what their ancestors did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you will be hungry. 
Woe to you who are laughing now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when all speak well of you, for that is what their ancestors did to the false prophets. There's something very unsettling about this passage, especially the end of it, and especially for those of us who are relatively fool and well-off. Now, a lot of people will try to get around this passage by spiritualizing it all. They'll try to, like, soften Luke's version by reading it through Matthew. So, like, when Jesus says, blessed are the poor, he's not really talking about the poor generally. He's talking about the poor in spirit, the righteous poor. Or when Jesus says, blessed are you who hunger, he really means you who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And that might help alleviate some of our tension, but that's not what the text actually says. That's trying to turn Luke's message into Matthew's, which is really to ignore Luke. Another approach some people will take is to make this teaching into like more of like a general wisdom saying. You know, like what Jesus is really saying is that if things are going well for you now, then you should prepare because eventually life will get hard. And if you're struggling now, well, then have hope, because eventually the good times will return. And that sounds kind of nice. I like that. But again, that's not really what Jesus is actually saying here. If we were to, like, get into the nitty-gritty of the grammar of this passage, which we're not really going to do today, um, we find that Jesus is making pronouncements. It's very specific. He's declaring certain people blessed and certain people not blessed. And that word that gets translated woe, um, it can be an exclamation of sadness, but it can also be a declaration of doom. It can be a word of condemnation. You could just as well translate that word cursed. Blessed are you who are poor, but cursed are you who are rich. Blessed are you who hunger now, but a curse on you who are full. That's got a lot more bite. But that would be an accurate rendering of this passage. And I'm standing here as someone who is quite full. (laughs) And that makes me really uncomfortable. Now, this passage doesn't come out of nowhere, right? These blessings and woes are part of a trajectory that we've been following along in the Gospel of Luke. If you've kind of been reading between the lines uh, since Advent, if you actually think back to December, we looked at Mary's song from Luke chapter 1. That was the song Mary sings when she finds out that her son is going to be the promised Messiah. Does anyone remember that song? I won't make you sing it. Some, okay, I see some, some fingers going up. <clears throat> See if this sounds familiar. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. God has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty-handed. And then in Luke chapter 4, which we looked at a couple weeks ago, Jesus' first recorded sermon, he declares that he has been sent to announce good news to the poor. So there's a clear path 
leading us to this point in Luke's gospel. But the blessings and woes crank it all up a notch. Jesus is being confrontational here. He's being incredibly brash, and we could even say political. If a public figure spoke like this today, blessed are you who are poor, but a curse on you who are rich, we would probably accuse them of engaging in class warfare. Now, as a church, we have to be really careful with this sort of thing. Um, churches are considered nonprofit organizations by our government, which means that we're tax exempt, which is a pretty nice perk. But as a tax exempt nonprofit organization, there are limitations on how politically engaged a church can be. Like, for example, a church can't endorse a political party or a political candidate, which I think is a very good thing. A church should never be telling you who to vote for. But some churches have had their nonprofit status threatened, even revoked, for taking a stand on certain issues that were deemed too political, speaking out against war or the death penalty, taking a stand on issues of like racial justice or poverty. If we held a press conference today, which would be hard to do with the wind, but if we did, and I stood out in front of the church, and I just read this passage of Scripture, these words of Jesus, with no commentary at all, we could lose our tax-exempt status. That's how potentially explosive this teaching is. And here's the thing. In our culture, we tend to think of politics in very partisan terms. It's all been so uh, polarized in our society that, like, every little uh, cause, every issue belongs to one party or another. If you care about this issue over here, well, then you vote for that party because that's their issue. But if you care about this part, uh, issue over here, then you vote for the other party because that's their issue. What Jesus is saying here, though, goes way beyond that left-right partisan divide that dominates so much of our politics. Jesus is saying something far more radical and revolutionary than all that. Jesus is announcing the arrival of a new reality, something he called the kingdom of God. The blessings and woes, along with all of Jesus' parables and most of his other teachings, it all centers on announcing the arrival of God's kingdom. The kingdom of God is a new way of being in the world, a new way that's been initiated by the life, ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And it's fundamentally different from all the other kingdoms we're used to. According to the world's way of doing things, it's the rich who are blessed and the poor who are cursed. But in God's kingdom, it's the opposite. In the world's way of doing business, you push and you fight and you climb to get to the top by any means necessary. But in God's kingdom, the first will be last and the last will be first. Jesus is turning the whole world upside down. And he announces these blessings and woes to challenge our assumptions about how the world is supposed to operate. In one sense, you could say that these blessings and woes are prescriptive. 
They're telling us what life is supposed to be like among God's people, in the church, with those who claim to follow Jesus. They're laying out a different path and rewiring our thinking about who's in and who's out, who's succeeding and who's not, who's blessed and who's cursed. Who do we welcome into our gatherings? Who do we welcome into our circles of belonging? And who do we hold at arm's length? Who do we devote time and energy to? Who do we emulate? What kind of people do we follow? What do we aspire to be? And who do we shrug off and dismiss? Who do we deem to be worth little more than our charity? What does it look like to win at this life? And what does it look like to fail? Is the goal to accumulate all we can so we can live comfortably, have a nice retirement? Or do we strive after things like humility and simplicity and making sure that everyone has what they need? Declaring wealth a curse and poverty a blessing sounds completely backwards, but how many lives have been destroyed by the pursuit of more? How many people have sacrificed their health, their families, even their own lives in pursuit of wealth? I have a really good friend uh, who's probably one of the saddest people I know. He's also by far the wealthiest person I know. Uh, We're talking like massive house, hot tub, boxes of expensive cigars, which I quit smoking when uh, my kids were born, (laughs) a cellar filled with wines from around the world. He's a really good guy to be friends with. He throws the best parties ever. But one time I was hanging out with my friend after a party, helping to clean up. And we started talking, and he starts asking me about my life. How's Aaron? How are the kids? What's the latest milestone Zeke hit? And then this friend of mine, this guy who in my mind had made it, he had arrived. He said something I'll never forget. He said, you are so lucky. You get to go home every day to a family that loves you, And all I have is this empty house. Rochester is one of the most churched areas in America. I don't know if you know about this, but we have more churches per square mile around here than most other parts of the country. If you find that hard to believe, just walk out the front door after the service and take a look around. Now, I'm really bad with direction. Catholic church here? Yes, okay, so the Catholic church is over here. The Methodists are there. Baptist Church is here. You've got Episcopalians and Presbyterians across the street. That's five churches in like two square blocks. That's a lot of churches. But Rochester holds another record that's like way more troubling. The city of Rochester and the surrounding area ranks third in the nation for childhood poverty. All these churches amidst all that poverty... I suspect that if we took the blessings and woes seriously, that wouldn't be. If we really internalize this message from Jesus, it would change the way we live. 
If every Christian in America actually lived like poverty was a blessing and wealth was a curse, I'm not sure we would have poverty anymore. That's the radical new way of life Jesus is prescribing here. But this is more than just a prescription of how to live. There's also a warning here. This passage comes to us at the height of Jesus' popularity. You see that when it describes the crowds. There's people coming from all over, even Tyre and Sidon, which are like 100 miles away from Judea, just to see Jesus. He has amassed so many followers at this point that he's forming committees, right? He's bringing together 12 apostles to help him manage everything. And these guys have to be excited. I mean, here's the Messiah, the promised king, and he's recruited them. They got in early. Maybe someday when he's on his throne, they'll be at his right hand with power and authority and privilege. The disciples have no clue what's coming. But Jesus knows, and so do we. His popularity is going to end. The majority of his disciples are going to abandon him. He's going to be executed as an enemy of the state, and the people who carry on his mission after him are going to face persecution, imprisonment, in some instances, death. Blessed are you when people hate you and exclude you, revile you and defame you on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for that is what their ancestors did to the prophets. He's trying to warn them. And there's a warning here for us as well. If we choose to follow Jesus, If we choose to live in God's kingdom, God's reality, that's going to make it really hard to live in this reality. We're going to stand out. People will judge you and look at you differently. If you refuse to play the game, to chase the American dream, and devote yourself to elevating others, honoring the poor, speaking out against things like poverty and injustice, You are not going to win the game of life. In about a week and a half, we will be entering into the season of Lent. Lent is a 40-day season of fasting and prayer that leads us to the cross, to Good Friday. Lent is an invitation to repentance. It's a chance to search our own darkness, to search our own hearts, To come to terms with the fact that if we had been there among the original disciples, we probably would have abandoned Jesus as well. But Lent is also how we practice. We return to this time of prayer and fasting year after year so that we will be ready when the dark times come. We enter into this season of mourning in response to Jesus' warning, so that we'll be prepared for the times of want and loss and darkness that will inevitably come our way. So my invitation to you for the next week and a half leading up to Lent is to live it up. Do something you enjoy. 
Go dancing, take in a movie, have some dessert. Don't count calories for like a day or two. It'll be okay. Because in about two weeks, when we hit Lent, that's when the work starts. That's when we respond to Jesus' warning and start to practice. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed what you heard, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with us on Facebook at Brockport First Baptist, on Twitter at BrockportFB, and on our website, BrockportFirstBaptist.org. Our theme music was composed by Scott Holmes. This has been a production of Brockport First Baptist.